Welcome to the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast, the podcast where each week we take a passage of the Bible, we read it together and we discuss it, getting the three different perspectives off of three different people. As always, I have Lachlan Miller, our expert. Hello. I've got Morgan Carter, our newbie. Hi. And I'm Joshua Lee, the PK. How are we going, guys? I'm going well. A few episodes ago, I think I was sharing about the fact that I've been planning a series for Church and the Minor Prophets, which we're going to be looking at on a Sunday. But this week, I've been preparing all the material for our Friday night youth program this term, and we're actually going to look at the life of Abraham. Mm. And so I just want to pause right here and say, if any of my youth or any of my leaders are listening right now to learn about Abraham, hello, welcome to our episode. (laughs) (laughs) Calling them out. Yeah, I reckon. Um, So that's exciting. It's nice to be able to... uh, look at those things at youth and spend my week looking at that, which also has helped me as Mm. we come today to also look at the life of Abraham. So that's how I am. How are you, Morgan? I'm good. Still enjoying some time off, just catching up with friends, doing things I haven't been able to do with work, Um, going on little day trips. But, yeah, I'm good. And how are you going, Josh? Good, doing well, doing well. The um, we've got when at the time of we're recording this, Easter is coming up, so I've just been trying to prepare for um all our Easter shenanigans and uh Easter ser- Easter services. I've uh, whether or not I've taken on too much too much work. I've taken on the um of doing the the sermon for Good Friday and Easter, then also our Saturday Passover meal. So just been trying to prep as much as I as much as mm-hmm. I can for a very big uh, weekend but uh, after that it should be nice to just sort of relax for a bit so you know apart from trying to prep everything doing 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 well I think I'm in a good spot though and saying like there's there's a lot happening but I'm in a good in a good position I know I've already suggested this to you before Josh but why don't you just play our episodes from Matthew on the death of Jesus on Good Friday <laughs> and our episode from Matthew on the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday uh, look, I could. and then you don't have to prep anything <laughs> It's the backup plan. We yeah, just okay. we we'll just pop that on on the screen, and then I'll just sit back. It sounds like a great plan for Easter. <laughs> I think it's good content. Yeah. If you haven't heard already, if you're new to the podcast, or you haven't just heard any of our announcements, we've got a Patreon. So if you want to support us financially uh, in that way, head over to Patreon, and you can find out all the details there. Morgan, what chapters are we doing today? Today we're continuing in Genesis, and we're doing chapters twelve to fourteen. Today's passage comes from the book of Genesis, chapters 12 to 14. These chapters begin the story of Abram, who was chosen by God to be both blessed and become a source of blessing for the rest of humanity. In these chapters, we see Abram's migration to Canaan, his journey to Egypt when Canaan is hit by a severe famine, and the rescue of his nephew Lot when Lot is captured by an alliance of four kings. So last episode, I alluded to the fact that we're now entering a new section of the book of Genesis. You see, what we've had before in the book of Genesis is like a general survey of all of humanity. There's large, big events, but theology about those events has been of the primary importance. And like Genesis itself focuses on the theology more than the events. But now as we hit chapter 12 in the life of Abram, we really transition to a totally different style. The narrative becomes really matter of fact and is just presented to us And we as the audience are left to try and figure out the theology sort of for ourselves. It's no longer as as explicit or as clear. Mm. And so the narrative both slows down because we're now looking at the life of just one character for a long time instead of a vast amount of years. And we as the interpreters are left with more work to do. Mm. And so it really feels like a new distinct part of the book of Genesis as we hit the life of Abram. Especially because we're going to now sit with Abram for you know his entire life mm-hmm. and then his descendants after after that and we'll just continue continue on with the journey there like we sort of started like a little bits of seeing people's lives with the descendants of Adam and Eve and then more so with with Noah and then his descendants and now we're really sort of sticking with just Abram and Sarai mm. I guess straight up I just want to ask why the name Abram and Abraham why is it why is the two names Yeah, fair. So Abram is his name and we won't see the name Abraham pop up until next episode, many chapters away. But Abram is just his name. The name means my father is great, which is a nice name to be called. But we will see that God brings a new significance to his name later on by changing it slightly. Mm. Abram's his original name and then it gets changed. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's like a Simon Peter situation from our Matthew series <laughs> of you have one name and then God appears to you and goes, actually, I have a more appropriate name for what you are going to do or be or represent. And so I think we're all going to struggle, but we'll try to just call him Abram in this episode <laughs> and <laughs> for most of next episode until he actually formally changes his name to Abraham. Mm. Yeah, Abram and Abraham is very similar, but at least Sarai and Sarah are a bit more different, so it's easier to make the distinction between the two. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how we go. <laughs> we'll see how we go. So the characters that we see here at the very beginning of 12 were actually all introduced at the end of chapter 11. So at the end of last episode, we briefly chatted about Abram, Sarai and Lot, wondering if we remember anything about them from last episode as we dive into looking at this story of theirs. I remember that Sarai couldn't bear children. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yep, very important for the story. We th- we're, we're speculating that Abram wasn't the firstborn. Was, yep. Was, was potentially, not, we, I mean, we don't know for sure, but was probably not the firstborn. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Lot is the nephew of Abram. Yes. Yes, so Abraham's, one of Abraham's brothers, Abram's brothers, uh, <laughs> did it already. <laughs> one of Abram's brothers uh, died, and that is mm. Lot's father. And the other thing that we said was that Abram's father was a pagan. And so we don't know what sort of relationship Abram had with Yahweh, the Lord of all creation. But we do know here at the very beginning of 12 that Yahweh appears before Abram and gives him a command. In fact, he actually gives him two commands here, and each command then comes along with several promises. And so the very first command is go. And when I read this start of 12, to me, it was like another kind of trust in the Lord, like another Mm. putting all the faith in and all the trust. And you see in four, it says, so Abram went, so he just put all trust in it and just went with it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. perfect observation i always wonder when whenever we like get those where they get the you know they get the call from god jesus and they just go it was like was it always that easy did they you know did they do it like should i be more like that like and just get up and go i always like wonder like was it a bit of convincing did they need to talk about it like what 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 was that conversation like unfortunately we're not going to get an answer for abram because as morgan pointed out chapter four just says so abram went he just went <laughs> But you've got to realize what the call is going on here. So he lives in Ur, right? Which is, this is how my study Bible put it. It's effectively the New York City of the ancient world. (laughs) Like this is the pinnacle of civilization. This is where you want to be. It's got every resource or facility you can imagine for an ancient person. And he's told to go to like a backwater rural area of Canaan Mm. and told go to this just not as nice land, like leave comfort leave the New York City or leave the London or leave the Tokyo <laughs> and go to a random little rural town. And Canaan, like the land of Canaan would have been a bit more sort of like hostile towards them, right? Because with competing tribes and clans and, and everything. Because Canaan came from the line of Ham? Yes. Yeah, I'm going to get it correct. Yeah, it just seemed like Canaan was a place where lots of different tribes lived, which back in the day, tribal affiliation was everything. Like if you weren't aligned with a tribe, you probably had conflict with them. And so here he is as a total stranger leaving a land and an area where his tribe or his family had influence and mm. going to a place where he didn't have any of that. Yeah. And it's a big, like, it's a big call, like, you know, call on his life. It's a big command to sort of go take because he's leaving the, the, you know, the comfy, the like what we're imagining, the comfy the cushiony sort of uh, hustle and bustle of that of that lifestyle and going into the unknown going into the uh, uncomfortable uh, I'm, I'm assuming here you know so great faith shown just to get up and go yeah which is that first command and the promises that god promises in return is he will make abraham a great nation he mm. will bless him and he'll make his name great pretty cool things yeah interestingly at least that last one is exactly what the people at the tower of babel last episode were trying to achieve for themselves they were working so hard to make their name great and here god just offers it mm. it's and you know it's through god that you will be great mm-hmm. not on your own accord mm. you could try but as we can see, God might just disperse that out. <laughs> Across the entire face of the planet, yep. But, you know, it's through 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 God's grace, through God's power, that you, will, you can become great, mm. but only through God. Yeah. And then the second command, the second imperative we see in the text is be a blessing. Now, I think the way the NIV translate this is actually quite unhelpful because it makes it sound like it's part of the promises being given to Abraham. But that is actually a command. So that line, and you will be a blessing in the NIV, is actually a command of be a blessing. Which, which verse was that? Sorry. End of verse two. 
because you often use a different translation, Josh. What does oh, yours say? NLT. NLT. And I will, uh, from the start of two, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. Okay. So the NLT has done the same as the NIV, which yeah. is kind of softened the fact that that is an imperative there. Mm. Like it's a command. It's not a promise like the three previous things. It is a be a blessing. And then if he is a blessing towards other, these are the three promises God says he will do, which is he will bless those who bless him. He will curse those who curse him and all people will be blessed through Abraham. Mm. Those are the three promises after that command to be a blessing. Be a blessing rather than you will be a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you said the same sentence twice. Did but I? I? I heard the tonal shift. <laughs> yeah. No, anyway, I, I, I get it. I noticed to the age where it says he was 75 years old. Is that significant? Because all the other ages seem so high. Like, obviously, we don't know exactly how old that was then, but they were always like 150 years old or 200 years old. Or Does that mean he was quite young? The way he responds in these stories is of a middle-aged man, like in terms of how active he seems to be, but also the respect that's granted to him. So given that he lives to, what, 175 I think we could see his age of 75 trying to convey to us that this is a middle-aged man. Mm, not a young bloke. Yes. And we've always we've always made that distinction of when we get to, like when they are Abraham and Sarah and they have kids of like they were having kids at such an older age mm. that that was a miracle in itself. Yeah. That's sort of like, you know, when we pick apart that, that part. And Sarai is an equivalent age to Abram. And in the second half of chapter 12, when he goes to Egypt, he's worried that People will kill him because she's so beautiful. And mm. so, again, I don't think we're necessarily meant to picture a woman of 70, but mm. more of a middle-aged woman there. Yeah. Just to return briefly to the, the promises, because I think that final promise of all people on earth will be blessed through you is actually very significant because um, I think this is the promise where we eventually get Jesus. Because mm. when you look at the life of Abram, his, just his life is not a blessing to every person on earth. Mm. Maybe he was a blessing to those in his local community. Um, those in his household are definitely blessed, but you could not argue that just his lifetime he blessed all people on earth. But I think what comes from him is uh, the promised redeemer of back in Genesis of someone who will crush the snake's head, and we know that that's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus as one who can bless all nations on earth. And so we do see the gospel and God's plan really moving forward in Abraham. Mm. And it says that, like, all the families on earth will be blessed through you. Mm. Like, not all the families during your time on earth will be blessed. It's like, or on earth, you know. So it's like every, like, that will go through the ages, mm. you know, further than just Abram. But along with all of these blessings, we also return to that issue that we had, which is that Sarai is childless and can't conceive. And yet half of these promises seem to rely on the fact that he's going to have a large family and a large nation that will descend from him. And so there's already a slight conflict or contradiction in terms of where Abraham is at in his mind because he's being promised things that he can't currently see how they're going to be fulfilled. Mm. Which further emphasizes that trust that he has in, mm. in God, you know, whether, whether it was like, you know, full trust or like, you know, I don't know. But I'll follow you, like, you know, depending on what scale scale that is, you know, it doesn't matter. There's still the trust was there mm. to, to go to go forth with this. So also probably like interesting to point out that when like families move, it's not just Abraham and Sarai moving or Abraham, Sarai and Lot m moving. It's probably mm. all their all their servants, as it says here, their livestock and, and all their all their wealth as well sort of yeah. sort of travel through them. And so I always get this image of like three people or two people sort of wandering, wandering through going from town to town. And it's like, well, it would have been a big family unit, like quote unquote family unit of because they didn't have kids, hmm. um, but like servants and possibly slaves or like. Well, it does say the people they had acquired. It's mm, a very specific word. Yep. I read one commentator who said that this was like getting of souls, almost like evangelism, that Abram went to the people in the city that he lived in and went, I've been approached by this God who told me to go here, who would like to come. Mm. And so that is an option. It doesn't have to just be slaves. Yeah. But alternatively, it could be the people they acquired were literally the slaves yeah. that they brought with them. 
And so, I, uh, you know, for, for me, that just emphasizes how how big of a move this is because you're up, like, again, not just two or three people moving, it's upheaving your entire life and, and moving it mm. forward. In verse 7, where the Lord appears and says to Abram, to your offspring, I'll give this land, isn't the Lord kind of all-knowing? So he would have already known that Sarai couldn't have offspring? Yeah, absolutely. So why would he kind of say that? Is it kind of to say, like, I know, but I'm still going to do it anyway? I think we are going to see the power of God in the life of Abram because Abram's big conflict or big uh, tension point is the fact that while he is already a somewhat great man, like he's got a, a large retinue of people following him, he's got wealth, he has no offspring, he has no descendant, he has no heir, and God in verse 7 promises that he will end up with an heir despite the fact that Sarai can't have children. And as we read further along, we will see that change, but only because of the intervention of the God of all creation. Mm. It's like setting up that that story of like, we, we, we're blessed by knowing how the story ends, but like setting, like, as you said, that conflict point of that like tension, that sort of hill that has to get like overcome and sort of mm. hinting at what might what might come later. But yeah, no, you're like, you're right. Morgan of like, and as we said before, you know, if, if there would have been maybe that question in Abram and Sarai's head of like, well, if you're all knowing, we can't bear children. So like, mm. why? Mm. Yeah, it's like rubbing salt in the wound. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Literally. And this is going to be a tension point for him for the rest of the story. And he's going to honestly sin greatly in trying to achieve this and not trust God in certain moments. Mm. But ultimately, God is going to fulfill that promise of to his offspring, I will give this land. Uh, I do want to pause here for a second and reach into the New Testament. Paul in Galatians 3.16 really interestingly says this. He says, God gave the promise to Abraham and his child. And notice that the scripture doesn't say to his children, as if it meant many descendants. Rather, it says to his child. And that, of course, means Christ. So I have a few things I want to draw from this. Firstly, Paul clearly sees Jesus here and says the promises to Abraham, promises to Abram, sorry, I'm not going to be able to stop doing this, to his child, to his offspring, singular. And Paul says that is Jesus. Every promise given to Abram, we see fulfillment only in Jesus. There is no one else from Old Testament history that we see all of these things fulfilled and it's only eventually in Jesus is this all fulfilled the second thing I draw from this is something as simple as whether a word is a singular or a plural, Paul thinks is ordained and inspired by God. He builds an entire theology on the person of Christ based on the fact that effectively this word offspring doesn't have an S on the end. <laughs> and so at least the way Paul views scripture is that every dot, every letter is inspired and enough to bring theology from, which I think is very inspiring in terms mm. of how we look at scripture. Well, it's funny because like, you know, it's like, it's clearly, you know, meaning Jesus. And it's like, is it? <laughs> it's like, is, is it is it that clear? I'd like, you know, once explained sort of, yeah, no, I get it. Like in terms of like lineage and going from the promise from Abraham all the way to to, to Jesus. But yeah, it's just, I, I don't know. I just find it funny. Of like, Paul, is it that clear? I mean... <laughs> Paul thinks it's very clear the fact that it, these promises are for Abram's offspring, singular. Mm. And then he goes, well, Abraham, um, Isaac didn't get all this. Jacob didn't get all these promises fulfilled. Israel mm. nationally didn't get all these promises fulfilled yet. But there is one offspring of Abraham who did. Mm. But let's uh, return to the Old Testament, <laughs> return just to Genesis and not spend too much time talking about Jesus, even though that's what I'd prefer to be doing always. <laughs> is there any significance about the great tree of, is it Moray? Moray? Look, when it comes to a lot of the names we're going to approach in the rest of the Old Testament, just say it confidently and we'll all know what you're referring <laughs> to. There is potentially significance. It's fairly well known that Canaanites often built shrines amongst groves of oak trees. That mm. was part of the Canaanite religion. So potentially what is happening here is Abraham rocks up to like a cult center of the Canaanite religion. That is an option. Another option is just the fact that Abram is a nomadic herdsman, right? He has no city and all the good cities in the area are claimed by the Canaanites. So all the good pieces of land are already claimed. And so the only reference points he has as a nomad traveling around this land are natural features rather mm. than like near this city well that doesn't matter to him because he can't go near it he can't put his herds near it 
he can't use that land, but a random large tree, potentially that's a natural feature that he can refer to and know exactly where that is and a place that he could actually stay for a while. So those are the kind of two options for what could be happening with the fact that this great tree is mentioned. Yeah, I've I've heard sort of it being explained of like, well, the Canaanites would worship the like, you know, the oak trees or these big these big big trees and because Abram then set up shop near one of these trees and then made an altar there. Built an altar to Yahweh. To yep. Yahweh. He then changed what that significance is, like what that sort of the symbol of an oak tree is no longer to a pagan god. It's now to Yahweh. It's now mm. to our our God there. And so he's sort of change changing the pagan ways sort of sort of thing. That's that's what I've heard. Um, I think someone like Luther, the guy who started the Reformation, mm. uh, would probably agree with you because he translated, in our version it says, and here Abram called on the name of the Lord. Luther translated that as Abram preached the name of the Lord. Mm. And so suggesting that Abram rocks up to this location, he builds an altar to his God, and then he starts preaching about his God. And if this was... Uh, center of Canaanite worship and religion, Abraham is presenting a new and better religion at that exact spot. Mm. Mm. Before we finish with this first half of chapter 12, um, something that I should have brought up when we were mentioning Galatians just a second ago is um, in our first three verses, we read through these promises given to Abram and they're fantastic. Back in Galatians 3.29, Paul says, now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs and God's promises to Abraham belong to you. Mm. And so just before we move any further on, as Christians, Paul tells us that we can cling to these promises. Mm. Those commands have been fulfilled so we get to reap the reward of the promises through Jesus. Yeah. And then I guess after this really fantastic moment of faith of Abraham just going and leaving Mm. everything behind we start to see some cracks in the character of Abram <laughs> as he heads down to Egypt and we see that, ah, God doesn't just call perfect people. Anyone else feel like this section was a bit gross and they like, felt a bit like, ugh, <laughs> like sort of reading it? Like that's that's the feeling I got of like, you know, they a famine strikes the land of Canaan, they're forced to go to Egypt and Abraham's worried over his own life rather than the life of everyone else, or at least that's how I sort of read it, probably a bit selfish of, of him, and decides to, to let everyone know that Sarai is not his wife, but his sister. Mm. And then that uh, is a whole kettle of fish of problems. <laughs> <laughs> Can I start by pointing out that this is only a half lie or half truth? <laughs> okay. So Sarai <laughs> is Abram's half-sister. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. Factually, biologically, they have the same father. They have different mothers, but they have uh, the same father. Okay, so the genes are slightly different, but I don't know if that makes it better. I mean, like knowing <laughs> that, I'm like, I'm like, oh, you know, the lie, like you know, knowing the lie. Okay, yeah, that's 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 fine. Knowing that there's a bit of truth. I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I knew you would have that reaction because you're like, oh, gross. He claims that Sarai's his sister. I'm like, well, actually, well, no, it's actually the gross part isn't that they're sisters. You've just made it even gross. The gross part <laughs> is that to save his own life, he's what like instead of calling Sarai his wife where they would be like, oh, we like Sarai, so we're going to kill kill Abram and take Sarai for our own. It's like, no, it's sister, so we're just going to buy Sarai off you. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's the gross part, I find. <laughs> like, But then you've added this other element where I'm like, oh, okay. Extra gross element. Uh. There is a logic to what Abram does. It's a logic born of fear, but given the fact that he says, and the text says that Sarai is very beautiful, if he claims to be her brother, then... Rather than killing him to get her, they would bargain with him and potentially make him rich in order to get her. And the whole idea would be because that bargaining process would take a while, it would give Abram time to flee or get Mm. out of there. The only flaw in the plan is that someone as powerful as Pharaoh has no need to bargain. He just takes what he wants. Mm. And so had anyone else in Egypt had their eyes on Sarai, Abram would have gotten out of this scot-free because they would have entered a bargaining process. And during that time, he probably would have fled. But Pharaoh can take what he wants. And I think we're meant to see here a lack of faith from Abram. Mm. Firstly, he leaves the land God promised to him at the first sign of a famine. I think that is actually a sign of distrust because God has promised him this land 
And then Abram effectively says, well, this land can't even support me. I'm out. And then we see him out of fear lying to Pharaoh. Mm. And so I think we're meant to see that Abraham has a lot of lack of faith here. Mm. And now by the end of his life, we'll, we'll see him come leaps and bounds and overcome a lot of things. But Abraham's story is like all of our stories, a lot of ups, a lot of downs. Mm. And he may have thought that he was doing the right thing of like trying to, well, God said that I like that either my descendants, however that may happen, have to live on or and so in order for that to happen, I need to live on. So he may have been sort of like maybe got the wires sort of crossed in that like lack of trust and thinking no th- this is this is what i need to do because i'm meant to live that's what mm. god sort of to- sort of told me but yes like you said he's he's, he's left canon he's left what god's sort of instructed him to do already mm. i think one thing that a jewish reader reading this story would pick up even more so than us is the parallels between this story and the exodus story mm. And so, for instance, you have a famine in the land, which causes the descendants to go into Egypt, but then uh, there is an attempt to kill off a bunch of the males in order to get the females. We then see plagues upon Egypt sent by God, uh, which kind of spoils Egypt and ultimately leads to deliverance and exit out of Egypt. Mm. Now, I think those parallels are helpful because this, before it was written down, was probably a story that the Israelites, even when they were in slavery in Egypt would have told each other. Like that is how we think this story has been preserved via mm. oral history. And so they already have a story of their the father of their nation escaping Egypt through the power of God, mm. which would have brought them great comfort knowing that that was possible for them. Because mm. as God intervenes in the Exodus story, he also intervenes here because he decides that God is always faithful to his word and faithful to his promises to Abram, even when Abram is not. And, he's, and it's fulfilling the sort of the promise. Of like if if someone curses you, I will curse them. Hmm. Um, it's like saying showing that God continues to keep keep His word there. It's also interesting that like, this is preluding when we do see the Egyptian people and Pharaoh more in the stories, as, as we you know we see it here. We we'll see it when we get to um, Joseph and his colourful coat, um, <laughs> coat of many colours, many colours, and and you know when we get to the Exodus story, and so you know we get we're getting hints of Egypt and and Pharaoh, but we'll we'll see a lot more of them later. Mm-hmm. In the start of thirteen, how does Abram become so wealthy? We see that at the end of chapter twelve, which is effectively that Pharaoh made Abram very wealthy in exchange for. I mean, Pharaoh thought he was getting a wife out of it. Mm. So in exchange for Sarai, he gives Abram all of this stuff. It says herds and camels and just wealth beyond belief as payment for Sarai. And then he discovers the truth about Sarai. She returns to Abram and he kicks Abram out of Egypt, but still allows him to keep all of those things. Mm. And so while I think we're meant to see the end of chapter 12 as a low light in the story of Abram's faith, he does leave exceptionally wealthy from his trip to Egypt. We should give like Sarai like you know a lot of a lot of credit here because she's gone through a lot <laughs> of of being sort of sold off of of having to experience all all of that and then coming back and and continuing that life with Abram and the journey in the journey they go and she's it's a huge it's a huge thing and and probably to commemorate her like her faith in God. Um, and just to keep sort of just going. Yeah, I think it's just like quite commendable that um, she gets the short straw here, unfortunately, (laughs) but still keeps up, you know, is still able to keep up the the good work despite like all this this happening, which I can't imagine in in any scenario how like this would have have been sort of awful to experience, but to Mm. still come out of it and continue the journey on. Well, the only reason she comes out of it is because God intervenes and sends plagues upon Egypt, which feels really unfair in this particular story. The Mm. Pharaoh did nothing wrong in this particular story. Mm. He added another wife to his collection, which we would say is morally dubious, but for their culture, it didn't do anything wrong. In his eyes, she wasn't married. And then suddenly he gets all these plagues from God. And so Sarah is rescued out of this situation by Mm. Yahweh when none of the human actors are doing anything the right way. Mm. Mm. But yeah, since uh, Morgan took us to chapter 13, maybe uh, let's let's continue into that. 
after the low light of the end of 12, I think we see another highlight here, another good moment from Abram, which is him and his nephew Lot are so wealthy that they realize they need to separate. And Abram is the patriarch of the family. He's the one that God promised this entire land to. He has the right to claim whatever piece of land he wants to, but in a, a moment of generosity, in a moment of faith in God's promises, he lets his nephew Lot actually decide what piece of land he would like first. And it's showing sort of that like Abraham now going sort of that upwards sort of journey mm-hmm. now from being from the love, the generosity of he, he gets to show to Lot, but also the faith and trust in God of like, well, whichever land I get, I'm now going to trust that the Lord will provide in that land mm. ra- uh, rather than trying to sort of go, oh, that one's going to be great for me. I'm going to go with that one lot. You get the, you get the other one. You know, there's, I think there's, you know, generosity and faith in, in, in both aspects. Mm. In verse 14 of this chapter, they talk again about offspring and what they'll give to the offspring. Mm. It's really interesting. They've brought it up again. It's like, is it reminding him to like trust again? And like, is it a bit of a reminder to Abram? I think it's a really cool moment of Abram has just expressed generosity to his nephew of letting him choose any piece of land. Generosity is a sign of faith in God's promises because faith does not selfishly seek one's own desires, but instead is self-denying. And so Abraham has done this great generous action and then God appears to him and reaffirms the previous promises, reaffirms the covenant, but also almost emphasizes a bit more. It's almost a bit richer because instead of his descendants just being a great nation, like in chapter 12, now we're told that they're going to be as numerous as the dust of the earth. And so he takes the promises that he's already guaranteed to Abram and heightens them even further. And it seems in the way that the story is told that this is because Abram has done this act of generosity and this act of faith and it and it says says here like abram settled in the land of kent so he's gone back to that original command mm. back to it so so like you know almost like back to square one but yeah. you know there's there's probably a bit a bit more of like a journey that's that that's happened and and a bit of learning that they've they've gone through but yeah like back to the to square one and as as we just said before the generosity he could have not picked that that part of the land but he but he sort of kind of does and the the faith that it provided despite you know it also saying that um people were continuing to like the people around in these in these cities in the land of canaan were continuing to sin against the lord but Mm. but abram was staying strong yeah and i think we're meant to see that line there as a really ominous line of lot looked around and he made his choice on a purely human level of He really loved the grazing areas near Sodom. And so on a human level, great decision, go take the best bit of the land. Mm. But the text gives us this ominous warning that the people of Sodom sinned greatly. Mm. And that is going to be continued later in chapter 19. And at the end of chapter 13, we see more great trees. Mm -hmm. They love their trees. (laughs) (laughs) They do. Anything significant about these ones? Um, I think everything we said about the previous tree could probably apply here, but I do like the idea that Abram is wandering throughout the land of Canaan and just everywhere he stops, (laughs) he constructs an altar to the Lord. It's Mm. almost like he's leaving little monuments to Yahweh across this promised land. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, it's probably like that, like that significance of, well, they're landmarks, these big trees, so I know where I know where we are, but I'm building an altar to sort of tear down the false idols that have been created surrounding these these trees. And then we move to chapter 14 and see immediately that Lot's decision was a bad one, <laughs> especially since this, like the the heading that the Bible that you know people like to write before the chapters is Abraham rescues Lot. <laughs> This is a story that I I sort of completely forgot or didn't realize was in. I didn't realize that, well, warring breaking out between different clans, tribes, people, um, but then also Abraham getting involved Mm -hmm. in it as well. Um, But this is sort of like showing how there's still human greed in the world. There's still like war. There's still sort of like this this sin. Humans are just against against each other despite you know the the massive restart that we've we've seen before sort of happening again Mm -hmm. morgan after we finished reading chapter 14 before we started recording you said that it was exceptionally confusing 
Have you put together who <laughs> is where and what's going on in the short time since we started recording? No. So up until about probably 11, verse 11, confused. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I need to like draw it out and map it out. Yeah, fair. There's just a lot of names and context. I was only able to understand this passage when I did exactly that. Mm. My first and second and third and fourth reading of the first half of chapter 14, I was like, wait, (laughs) what is going on? Yeah, Yeah. no, I wish I sort of have like pictures of, okay, so this person fought this person and then this person and they lost and then this. You yes. know, and they're moving around all these like images of whoever whoever's fighting each other. So you have the alliance of four kings from the east. So this is from the area of Babylon. We mm. see one of the kings is explicitly the king of Shinar. So we said in our last episode that the plains of Shinar is where Babylon is. And so we've got the four kings from the east, and that's an alliance. That's a, a group of people. Then we have the alliance of five kings which is from the Jordan Valley. Now, when you stop and think, while it seems like it's an alliance of four kings versus alliance of five kings, like five cities in one little valley is sort of nothing compared to the four kings that represent these eastern powers. Mm. And so these four kings are waging war against a whole bunch of people, conquering, building their empire, and they arrive at the Jordan Valley, and these five kings of the Jordan Valley try to rebel, try to fight, and get absolutely destroyed. And so the four kings destroy the five kings and seize everything that they have, which included Lot, who was living in the area. Ah, uh, poor Lot. I just feel bad for Lot because everyone got these really cool names and he got Lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, Lot. A Lot could be cool, I don't know. <laughs> To our ears, maybe not, but maybe it was a great name back in the day. If you're listening and your name's Lot, we love it. <laughs> <laughs> Please write in, send us a comment. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd love to know if someone's actually named Lot. That would be fun. <laughs> it's interesting because whenever we think of like kings um, or like people of like royalty, quote unquote, my, like, at least for the very least, my mind always goes to like what at least I'm used to, which is like um, the UK, the British, like style of 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 king where it's one sovereignty that rules over over a land mm. you're um, thinking a kingdom um yeah I'm thinking you're not the thinking kingdom. city states yes which there could be multiple you know quote-unquote kings within like a single sort of land yeah every city had a king because mm. they were just city states they weren't united by anything yeah and so i guess that's probably uh, like a sort of a cultural maybe disconnect of like well these aren't kingdoms going to war with each other. These are, these are as you said, city-states. City and so after Lot is captured, they come to Abram the Hebrew. Yes. The first time we see the word Hebrew in the Bible. We did say last episode that one of Abram's ancestors is where we get the word Hebrew from, but this is actually the first time that it appears. Do we know why this might be the first time it's mentioned? No, honestly. No idea why now it suddenly popped up, but this will be a distinguishing mark or word to use to represent all of Abram's descendants from mm. this point onwards. And so do we think it was maybe the the title Abram the Hebrew was like retro retroactively added because to, to prelude what is to, to come of where we get the name of one of his descendants, if that makes sense. like Yeah, yeah I understand what you're saying. I suspect that instead you've got this new person who's rocked up to this land Mm. and everyone in this land can identify themselves by what tribe they belong to. Mm -hmm. I'm Frank from the Hittite tribe or Mm. (laughs) obviously they wouldn't be called Frank, Uh, (laughs) but like they, they all are known by their tribal background and you have this brand new man rock up with what man, he's about to pull out 318 fighting men, right? Like he's, Mm. he's, he's a sizable force to be reckoned with. And I think they, probably ask like what tribe are you from mm. and i think that for whatever reason abram reaches back into his family tree and goes we are the hebrew tribe mm. and i just i just think that is how they became known yep. is people would have wanted to know their background what tribe are you associated with and that is the ancestor mm. that abram refers to yeah it's a nice little sort of like turning point for us as sort of reading reading the stories. Like we're sort of seeing like what Abram's going to become. Like mm. we get that we get that sort of like little like first sort of glimpse and hint of like oh, Abram the Hebrew, you know, and and as like later get becoming Abraham the Hebrew. Mm. But yeah, it's like we're we're slowly sort of seeing this transformation happen. He does just pull 300, 318 trained soldiers. 
yeah, literally pulls him out of nowhere. But I think this is meant to show to us that, oh, Abram is wealthy. Mm. Like he may not have built a city, but he commands an insane bunch like insane number of people and, it, and it's like saying here that they were born into his mm. household that's so not necessarily his offspring no. not yet but these were people that were following him around him if servants or, or mm. what whatever they they were there living with him in in this land and they were born into sort of quote unquote his his family but my question is, how did 300 men defeat this alliance of four kings that had just kicked the butt of the alliance of five kings? That is a good observation. <laughs> <laughs> Any thoughts? I'm still just confused who's who. <laughs> four kings from Babylon versus five kings from Canaan. The five kings lose. Abram pursues the four kings from Babylon because he wants his nephew back. Does that help? Yeah. <laughs> he must really love his nephew to go up against that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, it says attacked at night, so yeah. there was, this was an advantage. A nighttime attack is always helpful. I'd also probably give the uh, textbook answer of, well, with the power of God. Well, that's what Melchizedek <laughs> does later in the chapter. <laughs> he attributes Abraham's victory to Yahweh. Mm. He says you won because the Lord is with you. And all things are possible. Mm -hmm. Melchizedek sounds familiar. Did we talk about him in Matthew? Ooh, I don't think he appeared in Matthew. Mm. I could be totally wrong. I feel like we've mentioned him before. He's just a good dude and someone mm -hmm. that we should start <laughs> talking about at some point. Mm, and it's a strong name, Melchizedek. Yeah, Josh's yeah. firstborn son is going to be called Melchizedek. Melchizedek. <laughs> is the bread and wine here, is that where we get communion from? No, no. Communion is a very New Testament Jesus concept. This is just a celebration of Abram's victory. But let's start with who is Melchizedek? What hints do we see from the text about who he is? He is the priest of God Most High. <laughs> yeah. In a time when we only know about one follower of Yahweh, we only know about Abram, the follower of Yahweh, he rocks up a priest of Yahweh. Mm. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, and we're not even, like, calling... Um... Abram a priest. No. And uh, this is now clearly saying that there was potentially more people following, worshipping, praising Yahweh, praising mm. God. Now, he's more than just a priest, though. Is he meant to represent bringing some peace because there's just been this big, like, fight and then he just comes out with food and wine? Yeah, in a sense. So he is the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem. Uh, yeah. So he's the king of Jerusalem before the Israelites took it. And Salem means peace. I did not so know that. What a coincidence. In a literal translation, mm. the king of peace. I didn't know that. <laughs> and his name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. So mm. anyone who knows Hebrew well reads this line and goes, the king of righteousness, who was a priest of God most high and the king of peace, came before Abram. And you're like, mm. wait, what? <laughs> There's a lot going on here with this guy that who just appears out of absolutely nowhere as a priest, as a servant of God. He wasn't one of the kings that they fought. No. Or was in any, in any of the wars. No. No. Not at all. He's not been a part of any of these alliances. Yeah. That could have, it sort of confused me because I was like, oh, I have to go back and his, did his name come up before in that big list of conflicts? Hmm. So just a, a neutral party somewhere and just randomly rocks up. Mm. And it's argued that Abraham recognizes him as his superior because he gives him a tenth of everything that he has. Mm hmm. Like, you don't tithe to someone that you recognize as lower than you. Mm. You only tithe to someone that you recognize has authority over you. And here Abraham meets this person for the first time, again, who comes out of nowhere, who is both a king of Jerusalem and a priest of God, and Abraham gives him a tenth of all he had. What's interesting about Melchizedek is how significant he becomes in the New Testament. Mm. So King David, who becomes the king seated in Jerusalem mm. on the old throne of Melchizedek, he writes a psalm where he latches onto this idea that there is a priestly king from ancient times and says, just like how there is a priestly king from the old times, a priestly king is also going to come. Mm. And we see that reappear in the book of Hebrews, where we find out that Jesus is a priest in the line of Melchizedek. And because Abram pays a tithe to this priest, it means that this priest and this line of priests is superior to Abraham. And that is what the book of Hebrew argues, is that because Jesus is part of this order of priests, this order of kingly priests, mm. he is superior to Abram. So saying that it, it's... The order rather than 
a descendant, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so David envisions Melchizedek as the first and the initiator of an order of kingly priests, mm. which Hebrews then says finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And so while Jesus is a biological descendant of Abram and of David, he is part of that order that was before both of them and that exists superior to them. Yeah. So saying a priestly king mm. is probably also like quite significant because you could also you could you could think that those two things a priest and a king could be at odds against each other especially when like uh, like our sort of thoughts of what a what a king king is what a queen is or someone that holds that sort of sovereignty is like sort of held in sort of this the highest regard and almost sort of put on this pedestal you know on on almost a level of of God and you could potentially have people that might worship a king a king as well but sort of saying that a priestly king sort of you're melding what could be these two opposites together and is almost in a way saying like for me like sort of humbling that a, a king is putting a higher power than just themselves if that makes sense I know what you're saying but I think it's a very modern view like it's a very church and state separated view of mm -hmm. kings and priests. Because I think for this ancient audience, there's nothing odd about that because the way that kings claimed their authority in most ancient cultures was by appealing to certain gods. Mm. So for instance, take the, the pharaoh, the Egyptian concept of the, each pharaoh was effectively the incarnation of one of their gods. Mm. So therefore, that's what where they got their authority from. And they were also the mouthpiece or the mediator between the people and the gods. Hmm. And so I think the idea of combining the two is pretty normal. But given the history of Israel, they do separate them. Hmm. And so later on in history, someone like David, who is a great king, can never be a priest as well because God really clearly delineates between the two, which mm. is, I think, eventually where our Western concept has come from of keeping them separate. Yeah. But I think pre-David, pre-Israel, in the time period of Genesis 14, it's actually probably not that uncommon for the two to be aligned. Mm. Mm. I like seeing in this story Abram's character growth. And what I mean by that is one of the ways we see Abram get all of his wealth is almost taking it unfairly from Pharaoh in chapter 12. But here, where he has captured all of this property that mm. originally belonged to the king of Sodom, he finally again displays his faith in Yahweh as his only provider and says, I will not keep any of it, even though I potentially have a right to keep all of it. I'm not going to be wealthy off the back of your things, king of Sodom. Mm. And I, I, I like that. I also like that we see a direct contrast between the king of Sodom, who's a man named Bera, and the king of Salem, Melchizedek. And I think we're meant to see these two in contrast because Melchizedek is someone who blesses Abraham. And as we read in chapter 12, those who bless Abram, God will bless. Mm. At the same time, we see the king of Sodom not quite curse Abram, but have a very negative interaction with him and those who curse Abram will be cursed. And we know the eventual outcome of what happens to Sodom later in chapter 19 is total destruction. And so we, we see the promise of God in action. Those that bless Abraham are blessed. Those that curse him are cursed. Mm. I guess it's sort of like saying to like what I was sort of saying before with Kings is like Abram's putting his higher power in God rather than putting that power in, in a king that's going to provide him with something. Mm. He's making that distinction there between the two. I really want to find, we've definitely 100,000% spoken about Melchizedek before. I remember it. <laughs> Potentially. I swear we spoke about it in Matthew. Because, like, Melchizedek appears in the book of Hebrews. I just can't think where in Matthew he would appear. Well, unless we were just chatting about him. We could have just priest. chatted about him yeah, as like an off-topic tangent like absolutely we might have done that but i cannot for the life of me think where in matthew melchizedek appears but i honestly fully guessed that pacing like that was wild <laughs> <laughs> that was great that was that. good My takeaway from this 
reading is probably about having full trust in the Lord. And like I said at the start, how he just throws it all in and just goes, just trusts. So mm. I think like Josh was saying before, it's a reminder for things every day and how we trust the Lord and to go with what we're kind of directed to do. So I think it was just a reminder for me. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Even when it's really hard. Yeah. Abraham yeah. left everything that he knew, left his whole life, and goes after God's promises and command to go. Yeah. Mm. And that's so admirable. And as Josh was sharing, that's a really hard thing to reflect on as well of like, yeah. how do we do that? When do we do that? Mm. And mm. so that's a really good reflection, but also challenge for our listeners too, Morgan. Mm. Yeah. It's like, you know, what is God, you know, asking you to get up and go go for? Um, what what command is he, is he giving you? And I guess my 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 sort of reflection and takeaway point is is, is, is very similar, um, but to sort of add on to sort of the the just the complete sort of trust in in God is that even when we do sort of make the wrong decision, we do mm-hmm. stumble and fall. God's going to still be there. He's not going to going to he's not going to f- forsake us, and he can still make you know something out of a bad decision if if he has if he has to, if um, you know, if we're still trusting in him, even in our bad decisions, he's going to trust in us. Hmm. For me, um, I've been saving this quote to the end of the episode because I really like it. So this is by Gordon Wenham, and he says, the promises to Abraham renew the vision for humanity set out in Genesis 1 and 2. And so what we see in this story at the very beginning of the story of Abram is that a new vision of what could be. God speaks again like he did in creation and he starts very, very clearly this plan of salvation that will bless the entire world. And it's nice to see that story begin and I'm excited to see more and more of it going on. Mm. Well, as we wrap up, don't forget we've got social medias. Go follow us on social medias, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok. Go check us out there. We keep those up to date and uh, you'll get to see sort of uh, what the, what the podcast is up to, and get to see uh, what the next chapters chapters are, so you can sort of re- read ahead. Um, as we said at the start of the episode, we've got a Patreon, so if you want to support us there, go over to Patreon. Uh, you'll get sort of um, early episodes, extended uh, episodes, and some sort of extra stuff there. So if you want to support us, head over to Patreon, and you'll find all the information there. And Send in your your questions, send in your comments, send in what you got out of these these chapters, what your thoughts of Abram and Sarai and their journey that's that they've gone through. We'd love to know what you got out of this, what your thoughts are here and uh, send that in. Don't forget to share this around, share the podcast, share it to someone that you may think that might benefit uh, to the podcast or just uh, share it to someone that who hasn't heard of it. We'd love for this to continue to share and we'd love the word of God to continue to share around the world. Morgan, can I just get you to end in prayer? God, thank you that we're able to study your word, ask questions and share this with our listeners. I pray over everyone who's listening that they'll learn something and explore your word more. Give us the ability to have trust in you and make those choices every day and to follow what you direct us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you everyone for watching and listening. Thank you guys for joining us and we'll see everyone next week. Bye. Bye. A Mustard Seed Creative Production.